This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. I just flew back from Ohio, and boy, are my Buckeyes tired. <laughs> what? Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. As a native Ohioan, I, the thing I love the most about Buckeyes, I think, besides go college yeah. f- football, yeah. is that the snack Buckeyes, which are like the peanut butter dipped in chocolate, uh-huh. are very good. They are good. And the tree nut fruit Buckeyes are super poisonous. <laughs> <laughs> so if you were to rank the three Buckeyes as food, you would put uh, seeds at the bottom a literal human football player at number two, and then the peanut chocolate snack at number one. Yeah, I mean, and it's understand that there's a big gap, like two and three are close together because <laughs> okay. of like the brain injury and cannibalism. Some of, the, some of the many, the many shenanigans that OSU coaches and players have gotten up Uh-oh. to over the years. I was just judging uh, them as food, but sure, yes, also just general. No, quality. I was judging them as as what they are, yeah. which is well, if you're judging them as what they are, like Buckeyes, super tasty. Yeah, Ohio State Buckeyes, good at college football, even though college football is a problematic institution. Yeah, myth of and the college athlete. Plant Buckeyes, good at poison. They, good yes. at poisoning mm. people. Which is the best at being itself? Hit us up at overduepodgmail.com. We're here to talk about books, though. Uh, We did just go to Ohio to talk about a book. That's why we're talking about. So you're reading them with, like, you read books with your eyes? Yeah. Ohio State book eyes. And if you read enough books, you get bucks. Um, That's how we do. Only as part of the Book It program. Sort of abstract. Boy. (laughs) Um, we're going to talk about a book that, uh, neither of us have read before, which is sort of what we do every week. Uh, I'm going to talk about Toni Morrison's Paradise. Um, Andrew's going to like ask me questions and learn about the book alongside you, the listeners, how we do it every week here on Overdue. Yep. Um, this was a Patreon recommendation, patreon.com slash Overdue pod for more information. Uh, thanks, Leon, for this one. Leon says, uh, I'm going to do the thing where uh, he flatters us first, Andrew. Oh, um, please do. I love your insights into books and your sense of humor. I don't think I've listened to a single one without laughing out loud. Always awkward mm. at work. If it's not on your list yet, I'd recommend Paradise by Tony Morrison. It's not all that long, but it's full of memorable scenes and small but significant connections. It shows the highs and lows of humanity and the difference between generations, love and hate, failure and success, feast and famine. Top it all off with Morrison's incredibly beautiful prose, and you have a book that will stick with you for a long time after finishing it. And I don't think I disagree with him, though I do think... 
part of what will stick with me about this book is whether or not I got it mm-hmm. in as much as there's stuff to get. So we'll talk about that. Um, Andrew, we have talked about Toni Morrison before on yes. episode 158. Benny, I'm glad you ago. got the episode number because I also got it just in case that you didn't get it. Um, but yeah, we talked about Toni Morrison some, uh, Chloe Anthony Wofford Morrison. Uh, Anthony was her the name she took when she was baptized, I think, and mm. that's so that's where Tony comes from. Okay, uh, she was yeah she was born in 1931 and died just recently in 2019. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, like we we talked a little bit about her in in the beloved episode, um, which was about the book Beloved. It's, I don't know that it's particularly <laughs> beloved or not amongst <laughs> overdue aficionados. Sure, sure. Um. But yeah, the thing, big thing to know about Paradise is that together with Jazz, which is a second book that's in between them, it's sort of a loose trilogy on the theme of uh, like African American history. Okay. Um. So you don't you don't get any specific characters that carry over. You don't get any like specific narrative arcs other than like the wider arc of history that is mm. that is tying any of these three books together. But they are all thematically. Related and Paradise is, I'm pretty sure it's a reference to Paradiso, the third book in the Divine Comedy trilogy, because uh, Morrison wanted to call it War, but her publisher yeah. rejected it. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. true. <laughs> uh, so I think she went with the, I think she went with the trilogy concluding title. Oh, sh- okay. Instead. that's a way yeah. to think about it. Yeah, this was the first book she had come out after she won like the Nobel. For literature, I think, which she won in '93, um, and you're right to point out the like, was it, did it have the best name or not, um, based on publisher fears? Because I do think this book was like m- reviewed, like m- had mixed reviews. I was trying to think yeah, of a different th- way to say that, and that's the only th- way to well, say I feel that. Like people. <laughs> And I, I read some Goodreads reviews and I, you know, some some other like background about the book. And my the impression that I get is that people bum, bum, people bum, recognize bum. that it's well done and has value, but they didn't necessarily have like a great or easy time reading it, if that makes sense. Is that was that yes, your that was my experience sort of read on it? Um yeah. I do know that by the time that this book came out, like she'd had, you know, significant exposure via Oprah. And like people were very into her work from a almost like a pop perspective, like a pop literature perspective, even though her, her stuff has always, you know, strove to be as tough as it needs to be in terms uh-huh. of both its subject matter and its prose. Um, I, I think there was a there was a USA Today article um, where she talks about the difficulty of your text and she says people's anticipation now more. This is from like the late nineties people's anticipation now more than ever for linear chronological stories is intense because that's the way narrative is revealed in TV and movies. But we experience life as the present moment, the anticipation of the future and a lot of the slice, a lot of slices of the past. Um, and she would rather have people like grapple with what is difficult with her work rather than merely revere it. She says, I have people tell me your novel is on my bedstand. I don't want books to be what people dip into before they go to sleep. <laughs> she wants people to like <laughs> spend the time working on it. Um, and then there was something also mentioned in that article about 
this book being less well received and it might have had like a rushed publication process like she might she had submitted a manuscript and then maybe like could have spent more time before the final you know with more revisions or something like that yeah like i, I can't it's a tough thing i don't yeah, know because I, I guess that could help but also you know if if, if this is what she was going for if this is like yeah the point yeah tonally and structurally of the work i don't know how editing like another editing pass or two is necessarily the difference between yeah something that that Fair people enough. find accessible and something that they don't i don't know some edits are, are heavier than than others but um yeah like i like i said i was reading goodreads reviews i didn't vet this story i don't know if it's real but Uh-oh. i really like the idea of it so i'm gonna <laughs> say it on our podcast okay um, this is from a Goodreads reviewer named John who gave it five stars. Paradise was not well received upon its publication in 1997. And then he goes on to talk about um, like critics and and then Oprah's audience kind of were bouncing off of it. And um, it was recommended as part of Oprah's book club. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this apparently prompted Oprah to call Morrison to offer the viewers encouragement. One of the studio audience members protested that, confused by the novel's multiple perspectives and nonlinear chronology, she was lost on page 19. Oprah asked Morrison what the poor woman was to do, and Morrison's reply, which I have never forgotten, was, read page 20. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's really good. That's a really good answer. That's very good. Yeah, to your point about whether or not an edit would have made this any clearer, it certainly seems like she set out to write a book with a lot of levels of hierarchy, a lot of different perspectives, and what that does is it gives you, um, you know, a couple of a bunch of different windows into this town and into this time period that we're going to talk about. But it sort of deprives you of one or two characters to really hang your hat on. I think anybody who's coming from Beloved is like really looking for a main character that they can see this world through. And that yeah, just. I was, I was listening to our Beloved episode, and, and there are several characters to hang your hat on in that one. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's also interesting to listen to myself having apparently just recently learned about like skin tone privilege in the in the black community Listen, so that was like <laughs> we're all trying to learn we're all just trying we're to learn and live best. here um so that actually gets to to part of the inspiration for this book so um there's a great preface from morrison in the edition of the book that i read uh she was doing research for some other compilation of of writings and and collected histories um, and she was going through newspapers from like the 19th century, uh, you know, following the Civil War and, and resettling of black communities in America. And um, she says, of particular interest were those uh, newspapers printed in the 19th century when my grandfather spent his few minutes at school. I learned there were some 50 black newspapers produced in the Southwest following emancipation and the violent displacement of Native Americans from Oklahoma Territory. The opportunity to establish black towns was as feverish as the rush for whites to occupy the land. The quote-unquote colored newspapers encouraged the rush and promised a kind of paradise to the newcomers, land, their own government, safety. There were even sustained movements to establish their own state." One theme in particular in these papers intrigued me. Prominent in their headlines and articles was a clear admonition. 
Come prepared or not at all. Implicit in those warnings were two commands. If you have nothing, stay away. And this land is utopia for a few. Translation, no no poor former slaves are welcome in the paradise being built here. And then she goes on to talk about um, other instances of like colorism among these communities. um, And then that is is a huge part of what is reflected in the book. Um, So just this like land rush for communities that are not in the Jim Crow South, how can we get away and go there as Reconstruction fails, and how people set up communities and put up walls and gates around them, literal and figurative, um, perhaps even keeping away other, you know, people of color. Well, and then then also knowing what we know now, which is that even these sort of paradise places, like these areas that some black people found for themselves were then often, you know, destroyed. The, the, the big one that I'm thinking of is, is Tulsa. It's referenced in the book briefly. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The Tulsa massacre is, it's like the founders of the, okay. So let me get a little bit into the book itself. Um, Yeah, please do. The, on our book podcast. On our book podcast. Um, you always say, like, let me get into the book. Like, what if I didn't? <laughs> what if I was like, no, I'm not going to. No. I'm just not going to have it today. Sorry. <laughs> well, let's keep talking about about <laughs> the book, but we can't talk about it. Um, so it takes place in this community called Ruby that is itself a descendant of a community named Haven, that was established by nine families that left, you know, Louisiana or so in the 1890s um, after, you know, the key patriarchs in these families were hara- being harassed by Southern whites and they decided to leave. Um, and as they are leaving, you know, they are turned away from communities uh, that had already been established by uh, lighter skinned black folk who are like, well, this is problematic for us, so you can't come in. Uh, Please go. And this is like later dramatized in the book. They have like a nativity pageant in their church that is simultaneously the story of Jesus and the story of them being kicked out of the South and like not being allowed to settle where they try to settle. It's and newcomers in the town rightfully are like is this is weird what are uh (laughs) okay um and so i kind of like that as morrison both making an illusion herself with the people of ruby but also allowing for critique of that of that like double myth um, within the story but um so this town has been set up by families that are the descendants of people who've been in the Louisiana territory for over a century. And they are referred to later in the book when one of the characters, Anna, is doing like sort of a a town family tree that she started as like a project with the kids from school where she's like, hey, go ask your parents all their business <laughs> and we'll talk about it and it's a very you know it's a very it's like 300 people or something so everybody knows everybody's crap and nobody wants to talk and so eventually it becomes like a real private like research project of hers but she really breaks down the history of 
these uh, folks who are called Eight Rock, like Eight R. They used to work like really deep in the coal mines, and they are really uh, like dark skinned people who, when they encounter other light skinned black folk, they are surprised that they are of another caste. Like they are sure. They did not know that that was going to happen. They thought it was just an issue of black and white and then are surprised, you know, when they are turned away. Um, so when they set up First Haven, which then like kind of falls apart after World War II um, and then Ruby, they really make it like as pure as possible and exclude and express severe disdain for anybody coming in who might like lighten the town in a way. Okay. Um, so it's like, it's like a, if we can't get into your place then you can't get into our place. Kind yeah. Of thing. Yeah. And it becomes like, so it is a paradise quote unquote. And I, I gets at the idea of utopia that I think we've discussed with writers like, uh, Le Guin, and who am I thinking of? Butler a little bit, but mostly Le Guin, mm -hmm. of like it, using utopia not to say like, what if life was amazing? But like, what if we set up a life where everything was supposed to be amazing and then we still had problems? Like, let's talk about the problems that that would cause. Um, so these families have set up this paradise, but of course they are cloistered from the rest of the world and the times they are a change in it is the 70s after all and like Ooh, funky <laughs> and it's like there's a little bit of anxiety about like kids being into music and being different and stuff but also you know MLK has just been killed a few years prior like the Watergate hearings are happening. Vietnam is going on. And, you know, some of the boys in town have gone off to serve and die there. And so there's this like growing anxiety among people in the town to be like, what if we engage with the outside world? Like their, their problems with white America have become abstract as their problems with, anyone different from themselves have become way more literal. Okay. Um, and here's the big, the big problem for them is that just outside the town of Ruby, there is this big old house and just women live there. Just strange women just live in this house. It was, it started. I need you to elaborate a little <laughs> bit because you've picked possibly the strangest phrasing that you possibly could have. Okay. So let me, okay. The way that Morrison introduces, <laughs> the way that Morrison introduces this is so, okay. I've described Ruby um, where it is an all black community and the leaders of the town prioritize their blackness. Um, and it's all very explicit and there's no room for debate on that stuff. Um, the opening of the book though is the sentence they shot the white girl first and they and took their time with the rest and the rest of the scene is men from Ruby have moved in on this convent they call it where a bunch of strange women are living in this house outside their town and they are gonna kill them or run them off or something um, 
the the book then jumps around timey wimey wise, which is why it confuses that lady on Oprah. Um, <laughs> and it works backwards from this pivotal event, which then the book circles back to at the end. Um, but you actually, and this is deliberate on Morrison's part, she's spoken about this, um, she never tells you the races of the women in the house or even their skin color. Um, there are allusions to some of them not being white, um, but there is no explicit mention of it. And so she is deliberately, like, she's deliberately making you test your own assumptions. Um, there was certainly, I was an article I read where she talked about, like, some readers just assuming some of the women in that house are black because of the, like, various circumstances that they come from. Mm-hmm. And I caught myself thinking that and recognizing that she had not actually laid that out was kind of interesting to think like she's priming you to think about people a certain way to then flip it on it on its end. Um, OK, there's a scene where when when you first like really meet the convent in whatever the closest to like a chronology that the book has um <laughs> this was the frustration in your voice we're going to need to explore well, later also. okay <laughs> so okay so the book has um like eight or nine chapters each one is named after a different woman in the book um each of the five main women from the convent get their own chapter as do a couple others from ruby and around the book um, and so most of the ones that center on the convent women, you get both their like, it's almost like Lost, where you get like the show Lost. Um, you get, yeah, yeah, no, I've, <laughs> thank you. Um, you get like the flashback to their life before where they've ended up, like that episode where like Hurley uses the numbers to win the lottery and like the now, numbers I, start to ruin I his know. life. Uh, I know the show Lost as a thing that exists, but as soon as you reference any specific episode of Lost, <laughs> okay. I, am, I am not with you anymore. You are, in fact, Lost. Um, I, I, wasn't, I took pains not to say it that way, but yes. Okay. Well, I can read the subtext. Thank you. Um, the first one we get is this woman, Mavis, who is living... She's typing. Yeah, she does. It's after she's done teaching, teaching typing... Um, yeah her last name is Beacon it's weird Um, she leaves her life on the east coast because she has unfortunately left her infant children in a car while she ran into a grocery store and they die and it kind of messes up her life she may or may not be having some sort of psychotic episode where she thinks her remaining children are trying to kill her. She does have an abusive husband. So she like just takes the car and leaves. And we get like a few pages of her kind of trekking across America until the car finally breaks down outside Ruby. And she, you know, has to borrow some, she has to get a lift from this kid uh, to like take her into town to get some gas for the car so that she can like leave after she's met this woman at the at the convent um, and she Morrison does this great thing where like after she drives the Cadillac back to the house 
Um, it says, behind the wheel, cooling in the air-conditioned air, Mavis regretted not having noticed the radio station's number on the dashboard of the other boy's truck. She fiddled the dial, dial uselessly as she drove the Cadillac back to Connie's house. She parked, and the Cadillac, dark as bruised blood, stayed there for two years. And Morrison will do that a lot where, like, after a really just kind of straightforward, descriptive paragraph, she'll drop, like, character-changing news in a very succinct way, like, oh, this person's just going to live here now, just so you know. That's, the story doesn't move point A to point B, so I can just tell you that that's how this works. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, the women... When you when you were reading, like... Just, yeah, sorry, no, go ahead. Like, when you were reading, were you... <sighs> Sometimes when I'm reading a book that's like that, I keep, like, waiting for it to become more, like, linear and understandable. <laughs> Yeah, I w- <laughs> and sometimes it never, never does. Like I, I'm just, I'm thinking primarily of my experience reading Infinite Jest. I guess, but <laughs> I do think what was tricky. I was honestly surprised when the book came back around to the, oh, we're gonna have to go take care of those women in the convent plot because that is that is the beginning of the book. And then you spend a long time with these, like, meeting the different women, meeting Mavis, meeting Gigi, meeting Seneca, whoever. And then you get also, like, snippets of the town. And you're like, this, the town snippets are laid out in such a way that time is progressing forward. But you're also getting a lot of backstory, which is very, it is interesting. But, yeah, it's kind of disorienting. So that by the time that the men had worked themselves up into a tizzy about the convent again and were going to go off and kill them, I was like, oh, yeah. Wow, that was the beginning <laughs> of the book, huh? <laughs> and it's not even that long of a book. So it was like, I guess I was surprised at how well Morrison had like just got me into whatever rhythm, like wavelength she was on. But it did make for some disorienting reading. Like I, sure. I had trouble holding on to character details um, because so many of them are are either delivered slyly, like in the passage I just read, um, or they are like, they don't cause further action. They're just like, oh, and this is, I, th- I read this as a critique of the book, like the women who find themselves at the convent come from just like different, tough walks of life to the point where like I don't think they're quite cliches um but because the the aim of the book is just to introduce the different ways in which like patriarchy and careless men can like mess with women um taken in aggregate she wants you to take it in aggregate but it means that the individual stories seem like a little underdeveloped um, because the women don't necessarily like have individual arcs over the course of the book. They collectively sure. have an arc, but they don't. It's not like, oh, here's what happened to Mavis, and here's what happened to Seneca. Um, here's what they were trying to do, and they were thwarted, and things like that. Um, so that that can that did make for tough reading. And then the other thing <laughs> that makes for I always I kind of forget this about Morrison. whenever I'm not reading her is that she likes to get supernatural um, and 
she the women in the convent went the convent was founded by nuns to now this is the this is like the strange house you were talking the about. The strange right? house. Yes. Okay. yes. That was apparently like built by an embezzler <laughs> and then he ran out of money and a bunch of nuns moved in and were like educating, you know, native girls from tribes in Oklahoma, whether or not they should have been doing that, I don't know. Um, I think yeah, like any <laughs> any house with any sense of the supernatural about it like it has to have a really complicated Mm -hmm. like the building had to be weird yes the ownership history has to be weird. you can't just be like yeah i this house was this house was built 92 years ago it was it was flipped recently and i bought it with the help of debbie my realtor (laughs) and it went fine There's and a, now it's haunted. Well, yeah, there was a sign out front that said not haunted, and now I have to hang the sign that says haunted. Yeah, no, that's only in New Orleans, though. <laughs> um, oh, so, yeah, so this is, gets back to that, wow, that scene I was talking about 10 minutes ago with Mavis and Connie and the mother. I, I am intentionally making this podcast sort of Like disjointed. the book. That's great. And yeah, like the book. That's yeah. great. You know, art. Art imitates art. art <laughs> um, they say. So when Mavis rolls up and decides to stay at the convent, she meets Connie, who is not totally blind, has been at this convent for a long time since all of the nuns were around, and now there's only one nun left, and she lives all her time in a bed and is dying, probably. Um, But Connie can kind of keep her alive with her magic powers and you don't know that she has magic powers until the end of the book but i'm gonna spoil it she has magic powers um <laughs> she <laughs> what, a stra- <laughs> what a strange thing to- i mean i guess beloved does this too right because yeah, it has yeah. like the ghost baby who maybe is a ghost baby Correct. maybe she isn't it's not quite magical realism. If you're realism, doing something that's but that's like drawing on reality and and doing so really pointedly, it's so it's so strange to me to also decide that you need to make you need to put magic I, in it. Also, well, okay, <laughs> you know? so I do think the my other frame of reference for this in among like African American literature is uh, August Wilson, who in his plays, I always forget that there's like ghosts and stuff. But they don't come out until like the conflict of the plays get gets really bad, <laughs> and so I there's a, a tradition I think that is it here in the like the issues loom so large and are generally about like generational power, some of which is either in conflict with or derives from God. That things have to get bigger than what people are capable of, um, nor you know traditionally non-magic people are capable of right (laughs) so so like um at some point in her life uh, a woman from ruby comes to connie um who is like the matriarch of the mansion who was keeping this nun alive for a long time and is like hey lady you are magic um I'm going to teach you how to magic. Uh, oh, wait, this guy is in a car crash. Let's go over and you're going to save his life. Um, and she calls it like stepping in where she gets to the car and 
um, was it? Consolata looked at the body and without hesitation removed her glasses and focused on the trickles of red discoloring his hair. She stepped in, saw the stretch of road he had dreamed through, felt the flip of the truck, the headache, the chest pressure, the unwillingness to breathe. As from a distance, she heard Eastern July kicking the truck and moaning. Inside the boy, she saw a pinpoint of light receding, pulling up energy that felt like fear. She stared at it until it widened, then more, more so air could come seeping at first, then rushing, rushing in. Although it hurt like the devil to look at it, she concentrated as though the lungs in need were her own. And she uses that skill to keep this nun alive for a real long time also, um, so that when Mavis shows up, and again, you still don't know if any of these people, except maybe the nun, the nun is definitely white, um, if any of these people are people of color on purpose, that's Morrison on purpose, Um mm-hmm. The Mavis is like, where is all the light in this room coming from? Because there's no electricity in here, and that nun is like glowing, <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's apparently the light that Connie has been putting in her to keep her alive for a period of time until she does die. I was gonna say, are you sure she didn't just like rub a balloon on her head <laughs> for a while and like generate some electricity? Uh, the other magic thing in this book. Is that people in Ruby don't die? They just don't. If you're in, if you are in the town of Ruby, you do, you cannot die. Uh, do you age or? or? Yes, hmm. you do okay, age. So you, so you could be like, are there people who are super old? The oldest person was like five in 1890, and I think the book takes place in the 1970s. So no one in this town has died since the founders, um, Deacon and Steward Morgan, who are descendants of the original founders. Um, they're twins. And their like, cousin or niece or someone was refused hospital care while she was pregnant because she was black. She died, and they named the town after her. And sh- so, you know, that was, I think that was in the 30s or 40s. I'm, I could be wrong. Um, and so no one in this town has died since then. You could leave mm-hmm. the town and die. You could get in an airplane accident. You could get sent to Vietnam, and you could die there, which does happen to two sons so ruby is really like the inverse hotel california (laughs) is you can check out you can check out whenever you want but you can't leave you can't leave in the hotel right correct if you're in the hotel you have to stay in the hotel for it the hotel will never burn down or anything (laughs) um so there's actually there's a guy who works in town he has an ambulance that sometimes is a hearse but he can't have a full-time funeral business because not enough people die (laughs) and so one of these days he's going to open up a gas station (laughs) just so so he can have a job i like there's a sitcom premise in there about like a part-time Hearst driver mm-hmm. <laughs> like mm-hmm. a per- who runs a part-time like contract-based gig economy morgue. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the 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 premise that the woman who was collecting all of the gossipy you know family tree stuff she spells it out in the book that the thing that the men at least believe has caused the magic of Ruby to exist 
is the blood the the like pure sacred bloodline of these eight rock families um, mm-hmm. of which there are now seven down from nine because people mingled with outsiders and so uh she says unadulterated and unadulterated eight rock blood held its magic as long as it resided in ruby that was their recipe that was their deal for immortality Pat's smile was crooked. In that case, she thought everything that worries them must come from women. And that is the other crux of the novel that I think I've like hit on a couple of times, but not as bluntly as the as the novel does. Um, okay. That these men run this town. Um, the book is told almost not exclusively through the eyes of women, but th- those all the stories are centered. Um and, and that was the case for Beloved yes, also. Yes. Like men men were around, but they weren't the people who the story sort of no, turned no. on. Um and so the convent poses this unique threat and well and a unique perceived threat. I don't think the convent nobody in the convent is actually trying to harm Ruby explicitly. Um, but it's, no, they're just magic weirdos, and so it's yes. hard not to be threatened by them. <laughs> and I don't think that everybody knows that they're magic. Like some women in town have gone to the convent, and then they just come back. Sometimes they go there if they have a pregnancy that they would like to not have anymore. Um, and there are like various stories as to what has happened when people go there. Um, some men have had relationships with the women at the convent. But that's not a good thing because they're like godless women out there. Do it like what Gigi is like the is naked all the time, dancing music on the radio, like trying Mm -hmm. to seduce men, like kind of archetype of the crew, which then causes a lot of problems for everyone else at the convent who is not playing that role. Um but the the men of Ruby really prefer a kind of like wholesome, conservative, like we're just here to live and go to church and like we're not wearing too much makeup and we're not listening to rock music. Um, we're just going to keep living in this town until, you know, God says we need to stop. Um, we would prefer to never stop. So when their anxieties about the fact that both of the town leaders, Deacon and Stewart, the twins, um, are not having kids. They are unable to have more kids or any kids at this point. Because I think, okay, I think Stewart's it's either Deacon or Seward or Seward's stunt sons that died in Vietnam, and then the other one, um, they can't have kids. So the bloodlines are kind of drying up. I think there's like one last hope, and even and even he seems like they're they're not sure that he's going to follow through. Um, and then there's also anxiety coming from the youth in town, which is kind of like none of them are main characters, but they get referred to a lot as just like the youth <laughs> that are causing problems. <laughs> um, the town was founded around this thing called the oven when they came from the south in their wagons they had this big cast iron oven pot or something that they built and initially before it was turned into the town of ruby it was like um 
you know, the town would cook all its big meals in it and it provided sustenance and it kind of became a relic of, of the original town haven. Uh, when they founded Ruby, they took the oven apart and moved it. And a bunch of the women are like, why'd they do that? We don't even use that thing anymore. Like, Whatever. Um, but one of the inciting incidents of the book is someone in the youth have painted a black, uh, like a black power fist on it, like a black okay. Panther image on it. And there's this like growing unrest that the young people in town are not going to uphold Ruby's values, which basically means just clinging to the past and clinging to the patriarchal power that exists and not changing at all. Um, and there's a reverend who, if I had a character that like the two characters that I would put hats on, though, I don't think you could hang them on them the whole way. One is magic Connie, who I like a lot. Um, and the other is this reverend Meisner or Misner, um, who is a younger pastor running like the second church in town who is all about like, is this town going to survive isolationism? Like, is it going to survive this turbulent time in our country? And how can it, if it won't raise like a hand to help the outside world or engage in the outside world, he gets in multiple arguments with people where he's like, don't you want to know like about Africa and like where we come from? And people are like, why? What? I, I send my money in the mail to countries in need. What do I, what do you want from me? Like, we just live here. Um, they're not anyone to me. Um, and he's like, but like, there's a whole world out there. And if we could learn about it, maybe we could get over our history and like build a future. Um, and it seems to be falling on deaf ears. So he has a lot of like conflict with the town about that. Um, yeah, because it it feels like it feels like it's I don't know it's some it's somebody who's never experienced anything else, sort of misunderstanding the reason why the town exists the way it does in the first place. Like it was founded as a refuge from the outside yes. world because the outside world is bad. Yeah. But then people who only know the refuge are like, "Hey, what's going on out there?" <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, um, there's a, two really good passages. Uh, of his one is about this isolationism thing that I really like. Um, had the times finally gotten to him was the desolation that rose after King's murder, a desolation that climbed like a tidal wave in slow motion, just now washing over him. Or was it the calamity of watching the drawn out abasement of a noxious president had the long unintelligible war infected him behaving like a dormant virus and blossom. Now that it was coming to a raggedy close, everybody on his high school football team died in that war uh, they were the ones he had looked up to, wanted to be like. Was he just now gagging at their futile death? Was that the origin of this incipient hunger for violence? Or was it Ruby? What was it about this town, these people that enraged him? They were different from other communities in only a couple of ways, beauty and isolation. Um, and that's like where you, that's one of his first passages where you're like, oh, this guy is fighting an uphill battle. <laughs> and he, not everyone in the town is on board with the murder plan that happens later. And he is certainly not on board with it. Um, mm. Later he is think this. Okay. This next passage I just wrote. My note was woof Morrison. Like it just, it was a good one. So buckle up. He's thinking about the civil rights movement 
and whether or not he should like stay in Ruby. 20, 30 years from now, he thought all sorts of people will claim pivotal, controlling, defining positions in the rights movement. A few would be justified, most would be frauds. What could not be gainsaid but would remain invisible in the papers and the books he bought for his students were the ordinary folk. The janitor who turned off the switch so the police couldn't see, the grandmother who kept all the babies so the mothers could march, the backwoods women with fresh towels in one hand and a shotgun in the other, the little children who carried batteries and food to secret meetings, the ministers who kept whole churchfuls of hunted protesters calm till help came, the one who gathered up the broken bodies of the young, the young who spread their arms wide to protect the old from batons that could not possibly survive, parents who wiped the spit and tears from their children's faces, um... Yes, 30, 30 years from now, those uh, 20, 30 years from now, those people will be dead or forgotten. Their small story is part of no grand record or even its footnotes. Um, now, seven years after the murder of the man in whose stead he would happily have taken the sword, he was hurting a flock who believed not only that it had created the pasture it grazed, but that grass from any other meadow was toxic. Um, that first half of that, I don't know, I was just thinking a lot about protest movements and the ways in which they are like layered they are layers of action that sure. support each other um and a lot of stories never get told and i was like oh dang that that passage stood out regardless of whatever else the book was doing as morrison <laughs> just like you know just laying some some good lines about how that stuff works um but it is also him kind of wondering, like, in this small town where every story gets told, like, will anyone step forward to be involved or not? Um, yeah, I don't know. It's just is a good one. That one yeah. was. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> the ending of... I mean, are, are there any other, like, snippets like that within this larger book soup that stand out to you or, or stuck with you? My... When I'm reading a book like this, that's just like hard to read for better or for worse. I think probably mostly for worse. I find I have a harder time recalling it later. Yeah, yeah, if yeah. If that yeah. makes sense, like it's just, and that doesn't even mean I didn't appreciate it at the time, or I didn't enjoy it, or I didn't understand what it was doing. It just it makes it harder for me to. Like when we're doing our hour long book yes. podcast, like six <laughs> hours after we finish the book, like that's one thing. But if you ask me, this is the thing that that routinely happens to me is there's something I read like 18 months ago for the show and talked about for an audience for an hour. <laughs> and I have to like go back and listen to that to remember what I thought about it sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough because the the basic bones of this story where town full of uh men anxious about the future uh control control the women they have and lash out at the women that they uh wish they could control um that's like the the main those are the main plot points and as much as they are plot points so then the rest of the book is like a series of these little like tone poem-esque interactions where it's some of the magical stuff that happens to the convent women. It's some of these musings on a small town, which I am a sucker for. Like I'm, I was intrigued in the life of this town in the same way that I'm intrigued in Grover's court, intrigued by Grover's corners from our town. Or when we discussed Peyton place on the show, like the, 
the little sniping that can happen, the little bridges that can be built between unlikely allies um, over issues big and small. That's always very compelling. And then Morrison does have a couple little, as what you asked for, like a couple little passages where, like it's, I hope I remember stuff like this where when we're introduced to Dovey Morgan, who's married to Stewart, one of the first things that is on her mind is when Dovey Morgan thought about her husband, it was in terms of what he had lost. And then she just like lists a page of like things that he had lost, um, mostly like business ventures he'd gone out on that he would claim was a success, but actually he came up short in the end. Oh, geez. I was thinking of smaller things. Like my dad has lost his wedding band. Oh, no. <laughs> At least three or four times. Like he's <laughs> lost. Cause he, he like would. And I don't know if he does this as much anymore. He used to like work on cars and motorcycles. Oh, and sure. So yeah. He, he would take it off to do that. And then he would just lose it. And since I stopped living at home, I've lost track of the of the body count there. I can't but imagine what my. Re- I thought when you when you said he loses <laughs> stuff, I imagined that sort of. Oh thing. no! Like it, it's small in the scheme of things, but significant to you as an individual person. Well, she does she does a good job though because she goes from like, you know, business ventures, politics stuff, his hairline and his taste buds, small losses mm. that culminated with the big one. Um, where they could no longer have children. So she does the like, she does a nice like funnel with a real button at the end of it. Um, it's interesting to have a like a, an infertility thing that is pinned on the guy. Yeah, yeah. Because mm-hmm. even like even if you're if you are just a person trying to have kids, like often it's it's. The practice to well, check the woman first and it says, you know, I think getting the man even checked. Yeah. I'm just talking from experience. Yeah, that yeah. was another thing that struck me when we were recording our beloved episode and I was listening to it is like, that guy doesn't even know. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't even, he doesn't know anything. No. Old Andrew. <laughs> I think the, I think Andrew from episode 158 was, com- was we were talking about your chair that had broken. Like you didn't even we know were. you were going to care about a child. I'm still sitting in the chair that I replaced that chair with. <laughs> um, other tidbits from the book that I dug. Um, I alluded to it earlier. The the bit about the sons who die in Vietnam. There's a meditation on bringing their bodies back. They were in an integrated unit. And the the father knows that like most people who died in Vietnam are not just like falling on the ground dead. Like there's a chance that it's a, it's a box of that is not the shape of a person. Um, and there's a meditation on like whether or not all of his boys came home. And if there's a mixture of people and it's like given the context of the town and, and purity of personhood, like that gets very loaded. Um, the fact that the two twins, Stuart and Deacon, um, they've each got their own private secrets. There's a lot in the book about how they can kind of read each other's minds. It's it's like a take it for granted supernatural thing. It's not like a superpower. They just like appear to just be able to know each other's memories. Um, and at the end of the book in the climactic hunt the women sequence, um, one of them shoots the first woman that they kill and 
no one really knows who did it, but okay. But I believe it's Deacon is way more troubled by what happened, and he can't like connect to his brother anymore because when he sees his twin, he sees like himself, and he's disgusted by it. And there's just like a med- a lot of the meditation on twinning in this book is very good as well. Um, yeah, I think if people have trouble with this one, it's because the plot in as much as there is one is not going to get you through. Like you have to be there for the meditations on these individual people, which are often like a concept given human form, (laughs) like, or a particular relationship run through a personality. Um, Or you have to be interested in like this notion of exclusion and what it would mean for, marginalized people to establish a paradise which in and of itself is inherently exclusionary um Mm -hmm. in the preface morris to go back to what you said at the beginning of the show morrison does talk about dante and like she's like paradiso doesn't work if there isn't inferno like there isn't paradise isn't cool and worth it if everyone can come in that's not how it works yeah. Well, and as a reader of that work, I can also say that <laughs> if you ju- if it was just Paradiso without the other stuff, we would not still be talking about yeah, it that's like she's, 700 she's like, years later. She says yeah. that. She's like, that's why Inferno and its imagery sticks with you. Be- a, because like Dante wanted to write that stuff, but like he wanted to write that stuff because it proves his later points, I get, or he thought anyway. Um, so yeah, it's an, it's a, I liked my time with this book, but I was struggling through parts of it. Um, I w- that's always I always find that super tough. Like yeah, I, and that's part of what the time crunch does. I I think like I'm I'm torn because the time crunch means that you will finish it. Yes, in a way that you might not if you're just ha- if you're just reading it. Yeah, and having that's true. Trouble with it, but the time crunch also means maybe you can't appreciate it as much on its on its own terms because you can't you don't have as many opportunities to step away and like chew on it yeah I, like or individual chunks of it as opposed i think to that's true i think work. this book might uh resonate more if you like let yourself linger with each chapter um though you might lose a a sense of the interconnectedness if you go too slow. Um, I did find, like, I read, like, a chunk of it and then put it down to read another book for the show and then came back, and I had, like, I had to do a little bit of catch-up in terms of, oh, that person's this person? Oh, okay. And, And part of that is the book is actually deliberately, like, obscuring people's identities during certain scenes, or playing with dual identities or not telling you what someone looks like on purpose. And that is something Morrison's interested in, but it does make for more work. Again, she doesn't want you to read this while you're trying to go to sleep. <laughs> so sure, yes. <laughs> uh, it sounds like it would just be it would be a difficult it would be difficult to do. Yes. Even if Morrison was like, Yeah, I made this I made this sleepy time book just for you. It would still be difficult to, but if she—that's not a time wait, where I really like my brain can be grappling with a lot of new ideas all at the same time. Now I want to know though. Now I want to know what a Toni Morrison sleepy time on purpose book would be. Like, what is the Toni Morrison book 
she wants you to read like three pages at a time before you go to sleep. What would that be like? Boy, There'd still be a ghost baby. Be, <laughs> it, well, it would have to. There was still, yeah, and I think it would have to be like the same three pages over and over again because <laughs> that's kind of how I I am when I'm trying to read something right before bedtime. <laughs> it's like, well, this is where Kindle says I am, but. I have to go back several taps before I remember anything. Yeah, <laughs> I'm. I never like it when I open the Kindle and I'm on a page I don't recognize. <laughs> like, I can tell, and the fun, <laughs> I, I can tell when I've actually fallen asleep reading a book because just some chunk of text that has nothing to do with anything will be highlighted. Yeah. Oh God! Like yes. I fell asleep, <laughs> my finger hit the screen, and I accidentally highlighted some random chunk of nothing, and then I fell asleep. <laughs> uh, well, thanks for helping me sort through this book, Andrew. I, I hope tried. It's one of those. It's one of those ones where it's harder than usual for me as a as a non-reader of yes. the book to to try and help you through it but you know try to grab on some structural things crack a couple of goofs crack a couple and goofs I think we did i think we get it did it audacity tells me we've recorded 56 minutes of audio so that what is podcasting but committing time to <laughs> tape <laughs> i think people would dig this book if they're willing to put in the work and i think what it is exploring about black communities in o- in like oklahoma and the midwest during this time frame is like stuff that is worth reading about if you don't actually know that much about it and this is like an interesting way to to explore that that is not just going and reading like a wikipedia page or a history book sure if that's not but, it, your but it also sounds like if you are if you're trying to break into Tony Morrison, like do not do this. One. I would maybe start with Sula or Beloved. Yeah. Yeah. This should mm-hmm. this is not baby's first Morrison, I don't think. <laughs> uh if you want to tell us what your first Morrison was, hit us up at overduepod at gmail.com or twitter.com or facebook.com slash overduepod. Thanks to folks who have reached out to us in the past week including uh, Margaret, Aaron, Amy, Linda, Peter, and Peter's student who recommended the show to Peter, John, Katie, Gerald, Brittany, Pim Pim, Allegra, and Rebecca, many more, uh, including our friend Kate Reculia from last week's last week's last week's episode andrew folks, last week's it feels like longer because we recorded it longer ago also but. we were we're recording this like the day after that episode came out so time is meaningless <laughs> time is meaningless and we have got a whole trip to ohio that's that's uh happening in between now and then so thanks to anybody of you who came out to our ohio show at kenyon college i'm sure we had a great time with you if we didn't let's not speak about the unpleasantness <laughs> you will put it up on the feed at some point who knows just yeah just sweep it under the rug and don't talk about it assuming it goes well we'll put it up who knows what yeah, happen. yeah yeah if it doesn't then we'll just not have an episode that week and it'll just be it'll be the great mystery that'll be the price you pay <laughs> i don't know who will, you is in i will that miss sentence. our first i will miss our first on-time posting in like five years to make years. a point about this. About this Andrew, thing. folks want to know more about the show, where should they go? They should go to overduepodcast.com, which is our internet website. Up there we have links to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, our RSS feed. We're also available on Spotify, Stitcher, and pretty much anywhere else you can find podcasts. 
Um, also up there, we have a new listener page with episodes we think are good if you're trying to get into the show and you don't just want to start with a book that you know, uh, though that is also a valid approach. We've also got a link to our Patreon page. This was a book recommended to us by a Patreon listener. If you sign up uh, at a certain dollar amount, which I forget what it is off the top of my head, I think it's like seven bucks a month. You can get a book on our list guaranteed. We've got a pretty long backlog, but we are slowly working on making it Not less of a two, like a two year backlog yeah. and more of like a 12 to 18 month. Backlog. Yeah. <laughs> um, anything else? Nick, what are we doing next week? Do you have that pulled up? I don't know that we have, we know yet. When, are as we, of is this that recording. into March? Yes. Okay, we'll release our March schedule sometime this week, I think, after we talk about it. Uh, but don't forget to enjoy our bonus episode this month about the novelization of the Sonic the Hedgehog movie, which has made <laughs> a bunch of money. S- several tens of millions of dollars. Fairly Jim Carrey's go, back. You gotta go fast to see this movie, apparently. I wasn't sure if I was going to see the movie, but maybe I'll, we'll see after I read the book. Oh, no. We could talk about this later. I have a baby. I don't think I could go see Sonic the Hedgehog <laughs> movie in theaters, but we'll talk about it. All right, everybody. Thank you for joining us for yet another podcast. Until we talk to you next week, try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.